0: You know, every week that we do the weekly Havoc, there's almost no week that goes by that we don't talk about the civ mill divide, the civilian-military divide in this country in some way, shape, or form. It's kind of a subject that's always relatively close to our hearts. And this week, we just squared up on it and faced it uh, you know, with the full brunt of the show. So this week's topic was who cares about the civilian military divide. Why do we spend so much bandwidth talking about it? And why does it always linger uh, just on the fringes of our conversation, if not actually the subject of it? I spoke about this with retired Chief Mass Sergeant Dave Chamberlain and Uriel Epstein, the executive director of the Renewed Democracy Initiative, as well as, of course, Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint. It was a great discussion. Really had a good time with them. Um such a diverse group of people with very diverse experiences. And Earl uh, joins that elite group of civilians that have been on the show and certainly uh, upheld the tradition of having a series of outstanding civilians on. And this is something this, uh, that he particularly is focused on. I thought he had really interesting points that he brought up um, about the other and about uh, potential ways forward to bridge the Civ-Mill Divide. Uh, Dave Chamberlain, I was grateful for because he, I think, gave a good voice to the reserve guard experience as well as the enlisted perspective. And um, I think you guys are going it. I think it was a really fun one and a really valuable one, and it will not be the last time we discuss it, but it was uh, about time that we dedicated a full episode to it. So enjoy. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is The Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Try to make a little order out of chaos. Dave Chamberlain is the current Director of Training and on the Board of Directors at Code One Maintenance. He did 38 years in both the Air Force and the Air National Guard. He was a Chief Master Sergeant. He, Dave, I'll be honest with you, you're Bio has more acronyms than I know what to do with, and my brain could not process it all. But my bottom line takeaway was that you're much smarter than I am. You have a lot more certifications than I will ever have, and it's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Well, no, I just uh, I, I got into one of those acronym dictionaries and just filled it up. You know, generally, <laughs> generally, most high ranking officers don't know the difference anyway. So I, I spent a career of just making people think I knew what I was doing, but then moving before they figured out that I didn't.
0: Perfect. That's uh, that's even smarter. Now <laughs> I have even more respect for you. Uriel <laughs> Epstein is the executive director of the Renew Democracy Initiative, an organization that seeks to revitalize the political center by educating the American public about liberal democracy. He's also chairman of the board at PDLI, the Peace and Dialogue Leadership Initiative, which is a partnership between Yale and West Point. He was raised by Soviet Union refugees who lived in Israel before immigrating to the United States. Uriel, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. And, of course, Charlie Faint is here. Charlie is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He is the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments, in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea, three master's degrees, one from Yale, lest it not be said. Charlie's smiling and laughing and blushing, but it's true. He's currently a PhD candidate. He's the executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, and, of course, he's the owner of of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie.
2: Hi, Chris. Glad to be here with old friends and new. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Charlie, this week uh, you kind of pimped me out because Charlie just knew who the guests were going to be, knew exactly what general subject area we needed to dive into, and I'm going to leave it relatively open-ended. Um, in in the general category, I just phrased the question as argumentatively as I could, which is, "Who cares?" About the civilian military divide. So just to level set initially, Charlie, just walk us through that. And your understanding, I know, I know it hasn't been the focus of your career, but a lot of your career's been focused on trying to bridge the Civ Mill divide. What does that mean to you? How do you define that?
2: Yeah, that's been very interesting, Chris. And and growing up in the military, my father was in the military, both my grandfather's, my wife's in the military, and my my oldest daughter wants to join the military. So that was pretty much all I knew growing up. I never wanted to do anything else. Went straight from college into the army and been in there for 27 years. What was interesting to me when I when I was at Yale doing graduate school, which is where I met Uriel when when he was an undergrad, it was amazing to me how few people had ever met anyone in the military. And you know, everyone I ever grew up with was in the military, so it was unfathomable to me in a in a time where we'd been at war for I think at least 10 years at that point. They'd never met anyone in the military, and these aren't people that grew up in their mom's garage. These are these are Yale. PhDs, masters, and undergrads. At the same time though, I'd never met anyone who had worked at the White House or J Street or had uh, been in the Peace Corps. So it was kind of an awakening for me that we need to try to understand each other a little bit better. So one of the things we did at the Jackson Institute there at, at Yale is we hosted a CivMill Mill conference my first year in grad school, which was which was a good experience for a number of people. And then this guy named Uriel Epstein came along and wanted to set up this organization that ultimately became known as Peace and Dialogue Leadership Initiative, which uh, interested me and in, uh, in for a number of reasons, not the least of which it, it studies the. Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but also it takes uh, high-performing Yale students, high-performing West Point cadets, puts them together, and sends them overseas. So this is kind of a long-winded explanation of why this matters to me. And as I explained to these these young Yalies and West Pointers, is those are the type of people that grow up to run our country. So if you look at, at the type of people who go on to control the levers of the military, economics, and politics in our country, it's people who go to schools like Yale and West Point. So I think that's very important. And to answer your very interesting and provocative question: is everybody should care, but enough people, not enough people, do care about the civil divide, Chris.
0: So your decidedly anti-populist uh, take that uh, the people that go to Yale will run the country uh, aside. So uh, let's. I want to bring Dave in before. Ariel, I know you were name-checked, so I'll let you defend yourself here (laughs) shortly. But um, but Dave, I want to get your perspective because obviously um, Charlie's talking about it, and Charlie has a long and distinguished career as an officer, but there is also a cultural divide then with the enlisted folks. So from your perspective as a high-ranking non-commissioned officer, what does the sieve mill divide mean to you when you're looking at guys who, um, you know, may not ever interact with somebody who went to Yale, are not on the East Coast and kind of in the uh, military intelligentsia world uh, of, of the Northeast of America?
1: Um, I, I think to a certain degree for a lot of people, it's, um, um, it's not even something that's really thought about. Um, it, it, you know, just as an example of the civil military divide, a lot of the bases that I've been at, um, you know, guard bases, uh, are typically located, you know, it, not, not, you know, they're just stuck. A lot of uh, air guard bases are stuck right on a civilian airport. And I can't tell you the number of places I've been where I'd be in town in uniform. And someone would say, oh, you're in the military. And I say, yeah. And they go, well, where are you stationed at? And I say, well, the guard base is just, half a mile away, and they'll say, I didn't know there was military here. I mean, that's that's how much, you know, uh, lack of knowledge there is between the two. I know that uh, the Air Force anyway has started to try and uh, do a lot more community things, and the, the Air Guard has too, with the local populations, just so that they, you know, people know that they're there. But you know, for the most part, I think when people come in the military, they, you know, I'm in the military. Uh, what do I care about how I relate with civilians? And civilians are like, well, they're the military. And, you know, honestly, you know, part of, part of the issue is because there is such a divide that the, the general population's attitude, I think, towards the military is whatever they get from the movies. And, you know, they, they just think, well, everybody in the military is a, is a, is a beach-invading Marine that has to eat their parents in order to get into the Marines.
0: And Which, as we know, understand. is only 95% true. Right. Yeah,
1: right. it's only the ones that have tasty
0: parents. <laughs> right. Um, right. But,
1: but the thing is, is it, that's where people get their – and they don't understand the, just the broad range. You know, in the military, we say that the military is just a broad – it's just a cross-section of America. And, but, but people view the military and don't view the military as a cross-section of America.
0: Dave, I'm going to ask you uh, – I know we're still early in this episode, but I'm going to ask you a more probing question before I bring Ariel into this. And, and I'm not asking because of anything you said. I'm asking because it just came into my mind and I might be diming myself out by even asking this question. Do you have a chip on your shoulder when you look at the civilian world and go, you don't respect enough of what I've done? Is there any part of that in you or do you ever look around and go, yeah, you know, I did 38 years doing a job that had immense life and death ramifications and you guys treat me like, you know, I was you know, delivering mail or something for 38 years. Is there any, has that ever been your experience or has that thought ever crossed your mind?
1: Uh, for me, no. Uh, I come from a military family too, all the way, I can, we can trace ours all the way back to the past the Revolutionary War. Um, and, and, you know, I was kind of raised with that mindset, even though my, my dad didn't retire, my granddad didn't retire from the military, but there was always, and, and I've got Christian values too, as well, to where it's, um, you know, you put others before yourself. And so for me, I never looked at it and said, you know, thank me for my service. <laughs> I know, I know there, there are lots of people that do that. Uh, I think the thing that bugs me sometimes is, um, uh, j- just, uh, You see some of the things going on with the way Americans are fighting with each other right now over such pitiful, tiny things that sometimes I sit and wonder, you know, why did I serve 38 years defending what I see around me? Now, I have to always try to keep in mind that that's a minority that I'm seeing. I don't believe the majority feels that way. But you do kind of get down of like, what did I do all this all this for? you know i wasn't even in a situation where i've lost friends due to combat or anything like that i've lost friends from accidents and things um, but but i look and just go what what did i do this for what why did i serve america if america's becoming this way but i've never looked at it like you didn't thank me enough you didn't give me a discount i've i've never i've never worn the hat to get people to say thank me for my service
0: right right so Ariel, hearing that um What's your take? Obviously, you've probably dealt with a
3: full spectrum of issues related to civ Mill relations. Yeah, well, actually, I'll, I'll start off from you know when Charlie sort of referenced uh, us having met at Yale University. I mean, I was one of those exact people that Charlie was referencing. I had never really met a soldier, an American soldier. My father had served in the reserves in Israel, uh, actually, when he came from the Soviet Union. Um, but I'd not in the U.S. In any case, I, I think Charlie was really the first uh, active duty soldier that I ever met. Uh, and so, you know, of course, I had certain stereotypes ingrained of what it means to be an American soldier or what it means to be a soldier in general, right? And Charlie, I can tell you, did not fit those stereotypes. Um, and so. Uh, Part of this was just getting an understanding of what the military does. And, And the problem is, of course, I was in the majority at Yale. The vast majority of people had never met a soldier, as Charlie pointed out. And because they'd never met a soldier, they were very mistrustful of the military. Right? We do not trust that which we do not understand. And that's an incredibly dangerous thing. Because I agree with Charlie's point. I do think a lot of our former classmates and such will, within you know, however much time, end up going off and taking on senior positions of leadership and so forth and making the policies that you – know, certainly the foreign policy that the U.S. military will then go off and enforce – and execute on. Meanwhile, they do not trust the very instrument of American power that actually allows us to implement those policies. And I saw that as something that was incredibly dangerous, and it was brought home to me when um, there was talk of uh, building the center at Yale, that would be a partnership between Yale and the Department of Defense. And there were protests across campus. Everyone was protesting this. Uh, how dare Yale partner with DOD? And I remember I was thinking, like, am I missing something here? I mean, these are the guys and, and the men and women who are going off and, and risking their lives frequently and other times certainly you know, sacrificing a huge amount in terms of financial uh, recompense and other things. Even if they're not risking their lives, there's a huge opportunity cost to deciding to go into the military. And these are people who have taken on that burden. And we're saying, no, 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 we should not do anything with these people and and that to me was a shocking thing and then so as a result I ended up with Charlie's help actually he, he advised me on this. I wrote an op-ed in response and I remember the what really convinced me to get moving on PDLI was that the the response I got to that op-ed blew me away. I had something like six or seven active duty or veterans reach out to me, inviting me for drinks, for coffee, mm-hmm. uh, for meals, for, for God knows what. Now, again, I was what? I was a 20-year-old schmuck. Like, I'd never done anything in my life. These are folks who've, um, you know, risked some, frequently risked their lives, and they were inviting me out for meals or whatever. Like, what must have been going through their minds to have felt that isolated where they felt like they needed to take out this young kid who never really sacrificed a whole lot? Um, so that was that was really meaningful to me. And and one other note I'll note on I'll, I'll make on this is that PDLI what kind of came of this was this idea that uh, obviously civilian uh, the elite civilian students and elite military cadets, soon to be officers, needed to get to know one another and needed to learn from one another. But what's interesting is that bringing Israel into it was one. I mean, certainly just an interesting academic and and uh, historical and political topic. But also in Israel, it's very different. In Israel, sure. uh, everyone has to serve. There's a draft. Um, and what's fascinating is the, I think society as a result does a much better job of reintegrating soldiers. And they have a sense of what skill sets soldiers have learned in the military and how to utilize those skills in the private sector. And I thought that there was a lot that we could learn, not just from one another and not just having civilians and military together, but there was also something we could learn uh, from how other countries and how other societies uh, reintegrated and integrated their military into society at large.
0: So, Ariel, obviously, I mean, I think for probably – I'll speak on behalf of the three of us uh, that are vets and um, say that probably hits a lot of wickets that we, we agree with. I'm, I'll push back just to play devil's advocate What is it that civilians should learn from their interaction with military members? What's the secret sauce? What's so special about sitting in a room with a guy just because he decided to spend four years in Columbus, Georgia? Like, who cares? Why is that important?
3: There's no secret sauce. It's all about humanizing people, and it's all about making them real. There's no such thing as, as a stereotype of an American soldier, just like there's no such thing as a stereotype of an American Jew, an American Christian, uh, an American finance worker. I mean, none of these jobs have a single – they're not monolithic, and you can't simply use the moniker as soldier and, and, and have someone's entire identity be defined that label. And I think a lot of people, especially when they don't understand what something is or how it works, they frequently will take that one label and they'll use that as being wholly definitive. And so is there anything specific that I could say that someone can learn from, that a civilian could learn from a soldier or a soldier could learn from a civilian? I mean, I'm sure there's countless specific things, but there's no one thing that comes to mind. It's all about the fact that I wanted Yale students to, A, look at the military as the incredibly diverse cross-section of the U.S. that it is, and B, to try to uh, get rid of uh, these the sort of preconceived notions of what a soldier is and get rid of the mistrust. And by the way, I'll, I'll now you know broaden this out um, because, Dave, I think you mentioned the, the sort of incredible division that exists in the U.S. right now. And a lot of that comes from the fact that we no longer understand one another, and therefore we don't trust one another. And I think we, Charlie and I, I think, saw a kind of a microcosm of that. Uh, And now we're seeing it on a massive national scale. And so, you know, what we did with PDLI was on a small scale, try to break through that divide. And I think we, we had, we saw a certain level of success. I mean, in fact, what I, what I found fascinating was now we have multiple alums of our program, civilian alums of our program who have decided to go off into, um, uh, officer candidate school, um, and who have, who have joined the military. Uh, And this is a number of them. I I don't remember the, how many exactly, maybe Charlie does, but um, it's, it it was truly an impactful thing. And I think ultimately the, um, the result of bringing people together and getting, giving them a sense of who the other person is as a human being is really, I mean, that's the ultimate goal. So there's not like a specific substantive outcome. It's more of a heuristic. It's more of an approach. Uh, that I, that we really wanted to highlight.
0: That's fair. Dave, let me ask you, if you could do like a Matrix style, uh, like whatever that dental chair was, they had in the Matrix where they plug in the tube into Keanu Reeves' head and he goes, I know Kung Fu. If you could do that with a civilian and just pick one sliver of your experience to just make sure every civilian understood, what would that be? What do you think is the uh, a, a takeaway that's worth a civilian internalizing, um,
1: some, and you see it in photographs, and you see it in film sometimes. Um, and, and I'll just sort of illustrate, you know, what I think is kind of going on, and then why it's so wrong. Um, I think most people see the military as the DoD military industrial complex, and it's a big giant robot. And you hear people all the time voicing fears of. If President so-and-so says this, then the whole military is going to mobilize, and they're going to be in every neighborhood, and they're going to be pulling people out of their homes. And they just don't get, you know, when they start talking about Second Amendment, they're like, they're going to come and confiscate our guns. Let me tell you, I know from at least the three of us here, if someone told us to go to somebody's door and confiscate their guns, even if we're on active duty, we're probably going to be at the other end of the street with a megaphone saying hey guys we're just here if you want to give us your guns that's fine otherwise uh, have a day, nice day we'll assume you don't have any and they just don't and they and they they, they put a face on it and and part of that face comes from movies like dr. Strange love and full metal jacket and they and they see this unthinking individual which they don't understand in the military that we are taught to think for ourselves we have a we have a a legal responsibility to disobey illegal orders and that we can we can be executed technically if we if we do that. And so they don't see that. I mean, they see that. But what they don't see is um, when we were deployed to Turkey, one of the things that we did while we were in the middle of a war, we went over and rebuilt an orphanage. They don't see those pictures. They don't see the GI bending down to tie the little girl's shoes. They don't see them going into the house and leaving um, their MREs for that family because they feel bad for them. They don't see that side of things because that side of stuff is not newsworthy. You know, the me the lie type things, that's newsworthy. You know, it bleeds, it leads. But the humanitarian stuff that, that the military does so often, and, you know, of course, the Guard and the Air Guard are big on humanitarian missions, but so is active duty. And they don't see those things because nobody's that interested in the good stuff that happens. And so I would plug in and I would plug in all those great things. You look at the uh, Gail Halverson, Colonel Gail Halverson in World War II, the candy bomber, you know, flying flying missions into the Berlin airlift and he's dropping candy out for kids. That's what civilian people need to see is the human side of things uh, that, that these guys go through and not the crazed guy at boot camp at Paris Island who's. Gone
3: off his rocker. Although yeah, I Dave, wanted... I've I've had Sorry, I've had, ahead, had right. MREs, uh, I've had MREs, and I'm not sure if that's so much a kindness as a punishment.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. If you're starving to death, I think you'll you'll eat whatever whatever you got. But I, I understand. Yeah.
0: Well, it's funny you really say that because actually, I think that's that kind of touches on one of the things I think is is missing um, in the let's call it the Google translate between civilians and the military is I think there's a lack of appreciation for the gallows humor of the military service member and the just rank and file base level bitching and moaning that happens that you could, because you're relatively powerless and you're subject to your chain of command. um, All you have is cutting jokes and, you know, making disgusting references and all that. That's kind of the the currency. That's the coin of the realm in many respects. And it is in such diametric opposition to the civilian culture. Um, And obviously, more and more so, I think it's safe to say now. But I think think, uh, my dog agrees, for the record, in case anybody (laughs) wanted to debate him. Um, But I think that's one of the things that Really throws people um, when they try to understand the military and to put a military service member that would have that gallows sense of humor into a binary where because they said this, they must be a soulless, callous guy, actually you usually find – of course they care. They're human and they care deeply, but you can't be – you literally can't rip the veins from your arm and bleed raw human emotion 365 days on a a deployment, you'll lose your mind. So you have to build that wall of humor and taking solace where you can in camaraderie and joking and joshing and what have you. And again, I don't want to make too much of this micro issue, but um, that's one thing I've seen. Charlie, can you relate to that?
2: Yeah. So thats I think that's definitely a fundamental cultural difference. But I think uh, people can a- adapt to that. I mean, th- anytime you're dealing with civilians, that's, uh, a vet who's been in for a while is going to revert to that type of behavior. And I think it goes to something that Uriel mentioned and you you and I have talked about before, Chris, is he's making assumptions a- about each other. So I- I've talked about this numerous times, and Uriel's he- he- heard me say it, say it before. But you know, the only reason I applied to Yale is because General Crystal taught there, and I-, I figured if it was good enough for him, it was good enough for me. And the, the reason I was reluctant to go there is I'm from Alabama. I spent my entire life in the Army, either as a dependent or a member of the military. And number one, I never dreamed I'd get accepted into the program. And then when I got there, I didn't think I was going to be accepted by my fellow students. So I was envisioning fighting hippies on the green every Friday and my mm. classmates hating me and all this other stuff, all this ridiculousness that just never happened. But by the same token, as Ariel mentioned, people made assumptions about me because I'm, I'm white and from the South. I must be a racist because I'm in the military, I must hate gays because I went to school uh, as um, um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was still in effect. And because I'm from the South, I must be ignorant. And I've had people tell me several times after I tell them that I'm from Alabama, they'll they'll say, you don't talk like you're from Alabama. And when you start unpacking that, of course, they mean you don't talk like you're a redneck. Um, And when I asked them, how many people have you ever met from Alabama? Well, you're the first one. Well, sample size, N equals one. Then everyone from Alabama in your experience talks like I do. But at the same time, like I said, I, I made assumptions about them also. And it was good to work through that. So I think when people genuinely care and want to work together, we can find a way to do it. Society and people at large just let, need to let us do it. For, that.
3: The, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say your your comment on the humor element is actually really interesting. Um, you know, and and it, you mentioned it's a minor element, but I actually think it's it's a it's a little bigger than than you give it credit for. Because, so as a Russian Jew, I understand the idea of dark humor incredibly well. I mean, Russian Jewish humor. I mean, it's like it is is notorious. It is well right. known. And so I remember that was like a big thing where you know I come into college and I definitely grew up. My my, my parents were were my father was a dissident in the Soviet Union, and so I grew up with this very dark sense of humor. And I remember I'd I'd, I'd be, I'd start like telling these jokes uh, in college and and certainly I'd have, I'd have folks looking at me like, you know, what the hell are you talking about? And it's something that I think is, you know, when it comes to understanding one another, one of the things that I find that, that, you know, and it's a hard thing to teach. It's a hard thing to convey, but I think something, having this idea of like letting our defenses down, right. And so in other words, like you make a joke, which to someone else will sound incredibly harsh, for example or whatever rather than immediately jumping down that person's throat right how dare you say that right. or or, right. or what have you right trying to get a sense of the context the background what, what you know where it's coming from and and also even if you don't even get to that like every so often just letting something roll, in, roll off your back right yeah. and and yeah. and the idea that not everything needs to be punished not everything needs to be called out um Anyway, and so I actually, it's funny, you know, this is actually perhaps a point of commonality then between the immigrant community in the U.S. and uh, the military community, because I actually think that type of humor and that type of idea of like, look, you know, people should be allowed to say sort of. Whatever, and we should generally have a very, very high bar before we say like you know you you cannot say that or, or, or what have you. And that's something I think that immigrants understand really well, and I think that's obviously something that, as you pointed out, and the folks in the military feel. Uh, and so it's you know I think that's an interesting point of commonality there.
0: Yeah, I think when you have the weight of life and death issues, whether as an immigrant or as a military veteran, um, I, I think you realize you know who your friends are, and therefore you give yourself carte blanche to build whatever sort of camaraderie you have to build in whatever way. While you were saying that, Ariel, I actually was thinking of, um, one, uh, NCO who was absolutely evangelical about his belief that the only way to build a cohesive unit was to make such ludicrously over the top derisive comments that it was so abundantly clear. He was joking because it was like, you know, um, and I'm, I'm, spitballing. This is not exactly what happened, but it was something to the effect of like, if you don't, uh, you like tighten the lug nuts enough on a wheel, he would go, well, that's because you're an abortion of a human being. And it was hilarious. And people would fall down laughing. And a lot of this, like any stand up comic, I mean, it's in the delivery and it's in the, you know, you have to read the, the room and and know who you're talking to. But I think the reason it worked is because there was never any doubt that when the bullets started flying, he was going to not just get your back, but he was going to take a leadership role. He was looking out for you. He'd be the first one to bring guys into his hooch and talk to them. Hey, what are you doing for school? I know you're a fucking moron, but you really should get a college degree because a moron like you, it's the only way you'll survive. You're too dumb to flip burgers. You know, that kind of thing. Um, it is, it, in my experience, it's almost always masked a big heart. Um, and again, not to make too much of it, um, or, but also not to make too little of it. I, I think there is something to that. And that appreciation of life and death issues, I think, is a, a key point of commonality. I also just want to pivot though to something Dave, you brought up about the Vietnam uh, era movies, the, you know, full metal jackets and what have you. And I know Charlie and I have talked before about the movies that influenced us to make whatever career choices we've made. I think it's funny when you look at military movies, there's kind of two broad Categories I think that they fall into if you're looking at movies made in the last 30, 40 years. You you have your platoons, your apocalypse nows, and what have you, and the horrors of war type thing. And then you have your vet bro movies, Lone Survivor, you know, uh, what's the 12 Strong, you know, movies like that. And it's funny because in my experience, neither one captures the veteran experience. But what it does, and, and vets can appreciate both. Because they can kind of see the myth-making involved in it um, and they can kind of strain out the chaff from the weed. But I think for the civilian population, I know I've noticed when I interact with civilians how – what their frame of reference is is incredibly skewed. They just assume you're either killing people or on the plus side, like in, in some cases, I remember they didn't even process – that I'd been in Afghanistan they, that was so incomprehensible. They were like, I don't even know we're still in Afghanistan. This was a couple of years ago. Um, it just blew their minds. So there was that, that huge divide. And I think there is a, a cultural gap based on the entertainment sphere because that's the main way that the low information person gets their you know, information. Is that fair yeah. or real?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I certainly would say so. Um, You know, I mean, I don't remember the percentage. It's something like, what, 2% of Americans are in some way have any connection to anybody in the military? It's not just that 2% serve. It's that 2% have a connection. To, to somebody who serves. And I mean, you know, again, I'll, I'll give me a little bit of rope here. I'm, I'm not exactly certain that that's the number, but it's some incomprehensibly small percentage right. of Americans who have any connection to the military. And then on the one hand, that's actually a good thing. We don't want necessarily, you know, everybody to 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 have to go into the military. But the, you know, the thing that I wish we did a better job of communicating, and, and if I were to actually sum up one element of the civil military relationship that I wish we could somehow convey on, on either side is this idea of service. and uh, the and one the kind of centrality that the, that service plays within the military, that it's not that people day by day are living, uh, and or dying as they would in, in, you know, any one of those movies. Um, but that it's that they, they go into the military with this idea that I'm doing this in order to serve my country. And I feel like there's any number of ways that people in the civilian space could do the same thing. And with the same level of respect, the same level of sacrifice, same level of effort. I mean, there's any number of different elements um, for that. And I think as a society, we do not emphasize that enough. Um so I know General McChrystal has an entire organization dedicated to – I think it's called the Service Year Alliance, which is all about trying to get people to go out and serve for a year. So I actually think something like that, something that can convey the importance of, of us serving one another, of us serving uh, our nation, I think that's something that could, one, bridge the civil-military divide because I think it would give uh, soldiers and civilians a point of commonality. But I also actually think it would do a huge amount to bridge the political divides – Uh, That we're facing in the country, because i got to be honest, I do not believe for a single second that our political divisions are a result of policy differences. Right. It's not that you believe that the tax rate should be X and I believe the tax rate should be Y. And that's why we hate each other. Th- that can't be it, right? It's it, it's it's much more about the fact that I be- you know, I'm a member of X tribe and you're a member of Y tribe, and our tribes just hate each other, and and that's just the way it's been, and that's the way it's going to be, or you know, and that's and it's getting worse, and and that's it. And if we were able to all kind of unite around some. Again, I don't know. I'm not naive. I I don't think we're all just going to suddenly unite around this idea of service and and have it be done. I mean, I think there are substantive and real differences. Um, But I do at the very least think that it'll make us look at one another as actual human beings at the very least all dedicated to the same end goal, which is, you know, an improved nation and, you know, an improved community, even if we end up disagreeing about how to do that, and even if we have different experiences and so forth.
0: So I have a couple of opinions on that, but I'm going to hold my fire for a second. Dave, what do you think? How does that strike you?
1: Well, yeah, overall, I, I do you know, agree about the, the service, uh, people understanding that. But uh, I will add that um, not everybody joins uh, to serve. Uh, there's, there's always a handful of guys that joined for the college benefits. There's guys who joined just to get a better way of life. There's guys who join because their friends join, like in the movie Stripes, and you, know, you you run across the whole range. Now, firmly, I believe that probably the majority join up to serve, uh, but there are those that are just, uh, uh, you know, have their own personal reasons for doing that. And I think that's another thing that people need to understand, that not, not everybody has these... Um, you know, really lofty ideals of serving their country. Some guys are just in it because they're trying to get off the streets. And and that's cool, too. I think people just need to understand that across the board about um, everybody in the service, that that it's not a homogenous group and there's all sorts of different things. Some people are doing it just to escape their home life. Some guys are doing it to get away from their girlfriend. <laughs> they don't want to get married I mean it's it's the range I mean I even had a guy that a judge told him join the military or go to jail yeah um, yep so you get you get that whole range
0: yeah and Charlie I want to circle back to uh to you because I know you've talked about general McChrystal's initiative before and I believe you're a fan right
2: yeah I think it's great because uh, like Ariel said uh um, Getting everybody involved in service is a great way to do it, and I don't think any of the four of us would say that having a universal draft is a good idea. It's too expensive. Most Americans couldn't join even if they wanted to, and we need people out in the economy making money, coming up with ideas to drive – the the forces that make our military the the best best equipped best trained most effective fighting force the world's ever seen, so we don't need everybody in the military, but what we do need is the fringe benefits that come with military service. In my opinion, military is probably the only genuine melting pot left in America. Even when you go to college, people self segregate. They segregate by race. They segregate by ideals. And they segregate in ways that you don't typically see in the military. Now, there is still some of that. Yeah. But it's rare that you will see people not bond, regardless of where they came from, regardless of what they're going back to, inside the military. You can get some of that in the in the Service Year Alliance or, or whatever the, the Lincoln Project or whatever, whatever it's going to be called. And also something that's good for the nation, something that brings all of these folks together and makes them – work towards something that's bigger than themselves w- would be nothing but good for the country. So I'll, I'll throw this out here. I, I think that's
0: well and good in theory. I have a lot of problems with that. I used to be a much bigger advocate for that. When I first heard that idea, I thought, yeah, universal service sounds good. The, my problem with it is it smacks too much to me of Woodrow Wilson, of FDR – of a top-down, uh, a top-down technocratic approach to what really is a grassroots problem, which is the, um, the individual love of America, belief that it's worth being in service to, and that uh, the military has a worthwhile mission. And I think without those building blocks on an individual level, I worry that just trying to socially engineer people's experiences... Into the military or into other lines of service would actually backfire, and I'm my my the first example that comes to mind. There was a writer who I read extensively, God, probably 15 years ago. He was a former uh, Delta Force uh, operator named Stan Gough, who was uh, very far left, um, and considered himself a radical feminist, a radical Black Panther. He really embraced very radical causes, which I found to be fascinating because of his very conservative upbringing and his military service. And he talked very openly about a desire to socially engineer the military. He said, look, we're sensitizing people to a socialist way of life. We have all races together here. I see that this should be a political agenda, um, that we should, uh, you know, create a fifth column of people in there, um, not to forcibly overthrow anything, but that are going to come in and uh, correct America from the inside of its military. And not to say that he has any weight behind those words, not to say that that could actually manifest itself, but I thought it hinted at the unknown second and third order effects of trying a top-down approach to make people come together. Uriel, since this is your baby uh, in many respects, I'll let you that apart
3: so yeah no i mean look it, it, it to be clear i mean it's not my my baby um it's something i'm, I'm interested in as an idea and it's, sure know, it's something yeah. that yeah. at the renew democracy initiative i mean we'd certainly talk about and, and we'd i think be you know again I, I wouldn't say that our di has put this forth as our policy or anything of anything like that it's some it's merely i think an interesting idea and, and actually well i would approach that in a way that a startup would i don't think that we should simply implement this nationwide tomorrow I think that's something we need to pilot right? It's, you know, you don't, when you have a massive change in a product, you have a massive new product, you don't just roll out that product to absolutely everyone. And I'm speaking, I and mean, I also have a background in the private sector. I worked as a management consultant at BCG and in tech and, you know, in, in, in coming in from, with that experience, you don't just say, listen, we have this new version of the software, this new version of the app, and we're going to give it to all the users tomorrow. What you do is first you identify a hundred users that you're going to test this out with and you, and you basically roll out the beta version to those 100 users. Then you roll it out to a thousand users, then you roll it out to ten thousand users, and so on and so forth. And basically, you iterate each time. And I think if we were to do something like this, I think we would have to do the same thing. Let's let's try it with a small number of people. Let's try it with a larger and larger and larger number of people, and uh, and then we go from there. And, and for the record, I think there's already existing data that. I would say kind of would go against the example that you provided. I mean, again, I'll, I'll go back to Israel. It, sure. You know, arguably one of the main reasons Israel is as successful as it is with respect to the startup space. And again, I'm not actually making any political statements here. I'm, right, I'm, right, I'm right. pointing purely at the economic uh, and scientific and technological advancements uh, that come out of out of Israel. Um a lot of that is due uh, to the to the military i mean it's due to the fact that people have to serve and many you know many of the founders of israel's top tech companies come from their special forces units right. um, you know the unit 8200 which is their equivalent of the NSA um, you know, and, and and so on and so forth. And again, part of that comes from training and, and all that. But I think part of that comes from those ancillary benefits that Charlie was pointing to, uh, you know, which are about the melting pot, the fact that people come together and they are able to overcome differences uh, and, 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 and move forward. And so, one, I think the evidence... If anything, I, I think there would be more evidence on the other side of the equation of, their, of of the positive impacts of such than the negative impacts of such. But we can look at this in a very scientific way and say, look, I don't know what the impacts are going to be because we've never tried it. So let's experiment. Let's do it piece by piece and see what happens.
0: Yep. That is a point I um – at some point, we will have you back on, and I will go, uh, because I, I don't want to monopolize. I think I, – look. I think it's a well-intentioned program. I, I do wonder about um, the, the demographic differences between Israel and us, of course, that you know sure. the, the small scale and the, um, you know, relatively homogeneous ethnicity. Um, and uh, and the value, yeah, the way I'll the value push back on line. the
3: homogeneity. Um, just because I mean, while obviously yes, seventy something percent right. of Israel is Jewish, um, you have actually incredible diversity within within that. I mean, you have Jews it's 60% from sixty percent that are
0: Semitic, right? Is sixty so, percent are Semitic or something like that? Is that do I have the well, number I,
3: right? I, So. I'm not sure exactly about that. I, I'm, okay. I'm referring to the fact that you have, like, a, a, again, I don't remember the percentages, but you have about one, a 1. 1.2 million from the former Soviet Union. Sure. Um, you have a, another another, you know, million plus from from Europe and and from the West. You have another million plus from the Middle East. and you have another percentage from Africa. Uh, and so actually, and, and these people have beyond the fact that they identify as Jewish, they have almost nothing in common, including some of the traditions. I mean, Judaism, of course, as a as a culture, evolves differently in different geographies. And so on the one end, yes, there is. Certainly some probably a little bit more in some ways in common there, but in other ways in the U.S., we also have commonalities, right? I mean, okay. ultimately, yes, we're a much bigger country. We have a much greater uh, racial, religious, demo- socioeconomic, and so forth diversity, but uh, in a lot of ways, we were a country founded on on certain key ideals and principles, um, and we, I, I mean, again, and then now this is kind of my work at the Renew Democracy Initiative. I don't think we've done a good enough job uniting people around those principles and values.
0: I, I agree, and that's kind of I think where I'm at right now is I think messaging is a big part because with all the the I think all the plans and programs in the world can't beat Family Guy and The Simpsons and <laughs> Pineapple Express and like you know there's I just remember all the years uh, especially in early GWAT years when Bush was in office I remember just the torrent of anti-military um, this is you guys are throwing your lives away there's a desperate desire to re- equate. The GWAT to Vietnam because that's the only frame of reference that many people can grasp. And I remember thinking, um, "Yeah, that's a that's a problem because there's not uh, Bush was uh, many things, but he was not articulate, and there was I think a distinct lack of messaging. And there has been uh, throughout, and not just from the presidency, but I think even uh, I think the military does a poor job of defending itself or explaining itself to civilians. I. I, I I'm a little out of my element because I've never sat in high-level Pentagon meetings. And Charlie Faint may not have, but he probably knows a hell of a lot more about it than I do. So, Charlie, am I talking out of my ass or am I making a little bit of sense?
2: No, I think it's, it's pretty incredible. And the differences inside the, the, the military are big as well. So you and Dave served in the National Guard. And one of the benefits of that is you have a, a foot firmly in each camp. So I've done nothing but the military my entire life. Ariel's a civilian. You guys do both. So I think when we talk about diversity and we talk about the value of of service, I think that's one of the best things we could do is perhaps increase the National Guard and reservists as relative to the overall force. Maybe we don't need quite so many active duty folks. Maybe we have more guard and reserves. Maybe we get the active duty more involved in their communities. I know that's one of the the things that our superintendent here stresses, that's one of his uh, priorities of effort, is to get folks out and into the community because we all came from the civilian life. And if we live long enough, uh, it, all of us will return to it. So it, it's in our benefit to get out there in the force as well. And Dave, you were—you were—you did, what, 38 years? So what did you see as the, as the difference between the, your service in the military and kind of your civilian life? How, how well did those two things overlap?
1: Well, being being in aviation in both it helped quite a bit. I wasn't going to a a, a separate sort of uh, career field. Um, so, uh, in uh, a lot of the places that I worked, uh, you know, we had people that were in the Air Guard or the National Guard. I mean, one place that one airline I worked for, um, I was a, a tech sergeant at the time, and I was a supervisor of the department. One of the instructors who worked for me was a Uh, a major Black Hawk pilot in the national guard. So, um, and and then aviation is just jam packed full of retirees from the military. And some of the airlines I worked for were what they call craft carriers that did a lot of contracting with the government, flying uh, military people all around. So some of their bread and butter comes from that. So in that particular uh, instance, there wasn't much difficulty with it, although there were times where there were people who had never served that were outright uh, resentful of people going off to do drill weekends or going off to get deployed and stuff. And uh, that is, that is a, a big issue for the Guard uh, the guard and Reserves both, even though you have the, uh, the various laws that protect Guardsmen and Reservists. And, you know, they'll say, well, they can't discriminate against you because of this. Uh, Proving that in court is a totally different thing. And I think that's another thing that a lot of civilian and active duty people don't understand uh, is that how hard it is to be a traditional guardsman. If you're if you're a guard bum, um, you know, that's your full time job and you don't have to try to balance that. You don't have to go to your employer and say, hey, I've got to be gone for the next three months because uh, your employer is going with you <laughs> when you're a guard bum, uh, but when you're when you're a drill status guardsman, uh, that's a different story. And 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 when it comes time for promotions, sometimes they'll go and well look, you know, uh, Dave, uh, maybe we shouldn't make him a manager because he may have to be gone next week. And if he's gone next week or gone for the next three months, we're going to have to replace him. But what about this guy who's always here? And right. trying to trying to you know trying to prove that so there's a lot of the, the civilian community that go oh you're just a weekend warrior, they don't understand that sometimes you go 15 16 days in a row without a day off, uh, because right. you're working your civilian job and your military job and uh, truthfully even the even the full time guard people don't always understand the challenges of a of a weekender is that's the old term we used to use. Uh, they don't understand those challenges because they don't have to deal with two employers uh, like they do. So uh, that's one of the other things that I would like, you know, the, the, and, and the other thing that the civilian world does not understand either is they still have that weekend warrior concept, not realizing that with budget cuts over the years and drawdowns of active duty forces, how much more reliance uh, the dod has on the garden reserves to be able to accomplish their missions 60 percent certain-
0: of all deployed forces are, are yeah. Guard garden reserve yeah, yeah.
1: Oh. and 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 you know even even to a certain degree i would like to even see that within the active duty forces for them to have a better appreciation for what the guard brings uh, you know a lot of the younger troops will go oh yeah stupid guard they're weekend warriors they don't know what they're doing but someone who's deployed with older guard guys Understand what they bring to the table too. So it's not just military-civilian relationships, but it's military relationships between the active duty and the guard forces that need some work as well.
0: Yeah, and I th- I think there's a um, w- without getting into how the military can eat its own internally about the guard and active duty divide, I, I do think there's a, I-, I know like for big city police departments, you can't get good assignments if you're a guards reserve or guardsman or reservist often because you're gone too much and good luck trying to get a a sexy assignment and what have you. I want to shift gears slightly. Um, Ariel, I want to ask you kind of a weird question, but I I think it relates to military civilian, uh, the military civilian divide. What is the difference in your mind between discipline and repression? And I'll, I'll give you a second to think about that while I kind of explain why I'm asking and what my, what my end goal is. I, I think that in my experience, The biggest difference I saw between veterans and civilians was a sense of discipline. And it didn't necessarily mean, hey, I get up at 4 30, although that could be it. But it was also a sense that there are left and right limits to acceptable behavior. There's left and right limits to personal pride in many cases. And again, I'm painting with a broad brush. There are plenty of exceptions to this rule. Um, And what, but one of the anecdotal things I'll throw out there is I think the pushback that we see every time a veteran sticks his head up above the crowd with like in the last week, I know Black Rifle Coffee has taken a lot of flack because of one of their stances or people have a lot of hate for Jocko Willing because he's wildly successful. I think anytime a vet sticks their head up above a crowd, there's a lot of heat rounds that they take and it's because there is a big culture about, hey, it's not about you and not to say those guys are thinking it's about them, but just there's such a stigma about trying to be an individual. And that's, I think, a fine line of, are you disciplined or are you repressed? Are you repressing your innate talents because you don't want to uh, lose conformity? Or are you disciplined because you're trying to execute a mission and therefore you're on task? Is that, is anything I'm saying making sense? I'm I'm kind of making a bit of a
3: nuanced point. I'm not sure I'm conveying it well. Uh, So, I mean, I think actually, I think I do follow. and, And I think the key difference is one that you essentially implied, which is that, discipline is, it it can be limiting, but ultimately it has a broader purpose. It has a goal, right? Discipline is a system where yes, you have to wake up at 430, which means you can't be out partying till one. But that also means that maybe you're getting up at 430 to work out and you're going to be ripped, you know, uh, a few months from now or a year from now or whatever it is. And, and in turn, so so in other words, that limitation, that discipline allows you to achieve a goal, which will in turn make you happier, healthier, and you know, whatever else. And so from a military point of view, right there, I would imagine is a goal within, you know, there's a goal for unit cohesion. And so on the one hand, discipline would Uh, you know, in some ways would be limiting, but it would be in service of that goal of social, of of unicohesion. Now, the danger of that, and you kind of, I think, very strongly hinted at this is when is discipline can become, can evolve or devolve rather into repression when it becomes its own goal, right? You cannot speak out because you cannot speak out. You cannot speak out because uh, your opinion, I don't like your opinion. And, um, you know, and that's going to piss people off right? Or, or whatever, right? When it's, so I think that's, that's the key difference. And so we, I think the, you know, again, I'm thinking about it as a civilian. I'm thinking about it from my point of view, right? Like, let's say I, you know, I have a team that I work with and um, generally we have a very flat hierarchy. I ask and welcome, you know, a whole host of folks of, of, of different people's opinions and and so forth. And I, you know, kind of our rule is that anybody is welcome to say anything internally uh, until a certain point at which we have to move on. Right. And so I don't think there's like a bright line. I don't think it's, you know, it's like, oh, "Oh, this is it. This is that the moment in which discipline crosses into repression. It's that it gradually becomes more and more repressive until you lose sight of the broader goal that requires discipline to achieve. And your broader goal, to some extent, becomes the repression of opinions of desire uh you know right. not going out to parties simply because you know or or forbidding people from going out late at night or whatever just you know to not go out late at night you know on the one hand if it's in service to you know some broader goal terrific if it's not then then yeah i mean it could become repressive so
0: yeah and i charlie i'm going to pivot to you i all wonder i haven't thought this through totally but i wonder if that's almost the main lesson that the military can learn from civilians and the civilians can learn from the military, that the civilians can learn military discipline on a personal level, and the military can learn how to counter repression. Does that kind of make sense? Do you agree? Disagree?
2: Totally. And I was thinking about the difference between uh, re- repression and discipline. I'm glad you asked Oriel that question first because uh, he's smarter than me and gave me time to think about it. But I think the, the difference between those two is an issue of consent. So in the military, we consent to having strict discipline and the types of things that we have to do in the interest of good order discipline, which I think are reasonable, I won't have to do when, I, when I'm a civilian. For example, there are many things I would say on this show that I wouldn't if I, was not a, if I were not active duty officer. And that's neither good nor bad. It's just an observation. Uh, it doesn't change. You, to you a would end. lose your position of radical neutrality. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. And I, and that's probably a subject of a whole different different show. And this this goes into some of the the stuff that uh, Uriel does with RDI, which, which I think is very interesting about the politically neutral military, and that that seems to be under threat right now from a, from sure. a lot of different means. So yeah, I think I think there there is a distinct difference between discipline and repression. And I think in some ways. That We can share some of the things we learned in terms of discipline with our civilian counterparts, although a a lot of it's cultural and you really have to experience it. I could talk to people about discipline all day long, but unless they experience it, I don't think they're going to really get it. Right. No, that's fair. We're pushing it on time. So Dave,
0: I'm going to pivot to you. Tell me about Code One Maintenance. Dave's muted. Oh, there yeah. it goes. Okay. I got it.
1: Uh, yeah. So, uh, Code One Maintenance. What we do is uh, we're sort of a veteran-centered, veteran-founded organization. Uh, the the military is just jam-packed with uh, aircraft maintenance people. Has been for years. In fact, the largest skill code in the Air Force is aircraft maintenance people by far. in uh, the military and the Army's got a lot. Navy's got a lot. Marines got a lot. Uh, all these men and women. Uh, end up fixing aircraft uh, for four or five years and then get out. And they don't understand that they need an FAA uh, airframe and power plant license to be able to go do most of the jobs that are out there working on aircraft. You can get other jobs with contractors and you can get mechanics helpers jobs, but the real money is in that AMP license. And they don't know that they're eligible for it. The military doesn't do a good job of telling them that they're eligible for it. The military even pays for you to get the license. They don't tell about it. And wow. these men and women get out, and they end up working at Home Depot. And, and, and Boeing did a study la- last year that said that in the U.S. alone, because of the old baby boomers like me that are dying and retiring and everything else that form most of the workforce, um, they're going to be short 167,000 mechanics in the U.S. alone, wow. over a quarter of a million worldwide. Wow. And, and we've got that many people. If you took all the – aircraft maintenance people from all the branches that got out over a four year period, that would fill all those open slots. And so what we do is we give these uh, folks, because with the FAA, you can, if you've got 18 to 30 months experience working on aircraft, then you can apply to them to be able to take the tests. And so we're a boot camp uh, and we help help folks get their license in about two weeks if they've got that prior experience. There's a lot of testing that goes on with it. It's very intensive. Intensive more than what anybody's ever used to with what you have to do. It's a it's a hard thing to do, and so we just try to get the word out there. And we don't care what school you go to. We'd like you to go to ours, but we don't care. We just want you to get your license because that's a prerequisite to if you want to stay in aircraft maintenance. Um, that's that's a, a, a job for life and yeah. with with
0: really good pay and benefits. And a good job. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Oh, we're running short on time. So, Uriel, uh, tell me about RDI. I know we've talked a lot of, about it already, but I'm sure there's more
3: to talk about. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'll just give a really quick rundown. I mean, RDI was founded in late 2017. It was founded by this guy named Gary Kasparov. Uh, Gary's known as the greatest chess player in history. He's also one of considered one of Vladimir Putin's most prominent opponents. So, he's been living in exile uh, here in New York, actually. And um, And uh, the basic mission of RDI is twofold. So, on the one hand, we want to educate people around core constitutional principles. And second, we want to empower them to prioritize those values in their civic life and their civic behavior. And, you know, this is something that I think is incredibly relevant when thinking about civil civil military affairs and thinking about both the veteran and active duty communities in that right now in the U.S., you as Charlie hinted at, one, you have uh, kind of the loudest voices dominating the conversation, whichever political side they come from. Sure. And as a result, you have institutions like the military, which is probably one of the last institutions left in America that still uh, has a majority of Americans' respect. Um, But you have institutions like that that are being buffeted, um, you know, either side, and uh, are, are, I think, in, in, in a certain level of danger of losing even, you know, even that final last bipartisan, cross-partisan element of respect. And what we want to do at RDI is we want to bring people together and we want to empower and amplify more reasonable voices, Uh, get those more reasonable voices out into the community and bring together a community of people who are just completely pissed off about the (laughs) insanity that they're hearing. Um, and, And, you know, ultimately, if you're alone, right, if you're an army of one, uh you're not going to feel particularly empowered uh to go off and 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 stand stand against whatever insanity you're hearing but if you know that there's an entire community of people uh and you know you may disagree with them on specific policies and specific issues but broadly you agree on the core founding principles of the US uh then that will empower you to actually hold uh, elected officials, whether on the local level or on the national level accountable, uh, for representing those values. So, uh, we create content ranging from videos to written content. Um, we're going to be hosting a number of events. We, we, we're going to be hosting podcasts like this one. Uh, there's really going to be a lot out there and hopefully I'll see, uh, some of you there.
0: That's outstanding. I've been a huge fan of Gary Kasparov for a long time and, uh, follow him on Twitter and, um, a real, in my opinion, a real north star of common sense, and um, that just sounds great. I wish we could talk at length uh, about that even more, but unfortunately, we can't, Charlie. Uh, I will put a link to Second Mission in there, uh, but everybody knows, go to secondmissionfoundation.org and "By the Hill" by Aaron Kirk. <laughs> so we'll leave it for that, uh, and we'll leave it there I'll for now. I'll quickly jump
3: in then with the website uh, to go to rdi.org uh, if you're interested Excellent. in uh, the Renew Democracy Initiative. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks, Ariel. So Dave, Ariel,
0: Charlie, thank you guys for being here. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. So to everyone else, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. If you're on iTunes, we would love your five-star review. You can say whatever you want about us. We take questions, we take comments, we take snide remarks, but if you can attach them to a five-star review, that would be outstanding. Show notes. We will have show notes at the weekly or in my accompanying article at Havoc Journal or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Just scroll down and you'll see whatever show notes we have. I don't think we'll have a ton on this one, but whatever we do have, they will be there. We will also have show alibis for anything that was misstated and needs to be corrected or context needs to be added. Generally, this is just my chance to make myself look smarter or correct the record on something I said, or something to ensure that I don't wake up at 2 in the morning in a cold sweat going, why on earth did I say it like that? It is also available to our guests if they think they misstated anything, but generally I'm the only one that tends to do that. So you'll see them there as well, weeklyhavoc.podbeam.com, the accompanying article at Havoc Journal, or wherever you're currently listening to this. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Dave Chamberlain, Ariel Epstein, and Charlie Faint, and we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos. We see you next time for the weekly havoc.
2: i was uh, letting you know that the video is not recorded. I don't know if we
3: made that clear to you. Oh, it's not okay. Yeah, it's kind of a no. We're just recording. Yeah. It's a nice to have, not a need to have. Oh, the, the, so oh, we the can video kind of is not yeah. Oh, so like nobody's no. actually going to see the video. Then it doesn't no. matter. Nope. No, you can oh, make faces
0: okay. throughout the entire episode. Oh,
3: okay. Yep. So then I you take your shirt off. <laughs> you can <laughs> right. do anything.
2: You- right.
3: I think I'll keep my shirt on for now. But
2: uh- I got dressed for nothing.